From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a coroner's perspective as COVID-19 ticks up in Colorado. I'll speak with the coroner in El Paso County. Then, they're sought after, but their turnover is high. Chief diversity officers who may wish to move faster than the institutions that hire them. I'll speak with Oklahoma State's diversity officer. He's a graduate of Denver's Manual High School. Later, Colorado artist Jasmine Colgan reclaims symbols of slavery and racism. Shells used as currency in the slave trade, a noose, cotton. She calls some of her new work confrontational. And navigating the pandemic with a disability, from public transit to masks. If you're someone who can't wear a mask because of a disability, that's just presented another barrier. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our first guest was audibly frustrated when he spoke to El Paso County commissioners last week about the rise in COVID-19 cases there. How many people is the right amount of people to die? Seriously, how many? what's the right amount that need to die for us to do something about this? Dr. Leon Kelly is the El Paso County coroner. He's also deputy director of public health there. And he thinks his community is losing ground in this fight. What this feels like a little bit, if I'm going to be honest, is when you're on a team and you started out great and you had a big lead and the other team caught up. You got sloppy, you got lazy, showboating a little bit. And then you go into the locker room at halftime and we're like, what in the world happened? We had this thing. Colorado's first COVID-19 death was in El Paso County. Dr. Kelly is on the line from Colorado Springs now to talk about what has happened since and why he's worried now. And doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Remind us of that first death, an older woman who'd attended a bridge tournament. How do you see that case now versus how you viewed it then? Yeah, that, that case was an important one. It was obviously the first death in Colorado, but it was really a wake-up call for our community locally. At that point, we really weren't talking even about community spread. We kind of thought we still had kind of the lid on this thing a little bit, um, but but that case certainly illustrated that that, that horse was well out of the barn. Um, we had uh, the outbreak at a bridge tournament that resulted in that, that first death. That was March 13th, Friday the 13th. And uh, an investigation immediately revealed that, that this individual had been in a large bridge tournament. A lot of those folks who were there and involved were kind of pillars of, of Colorado Springs. They were older folks and lawyers and, and, and people that a lot of us um, knew and had looked up to and had made significant contributions to this community. So I think for a lot of us, it was like, oh, man, it, it's here. Um, and it really allowed us, while we started out really in a bad place because of that first outbreak, it really kind of recalibrated everyone's thoughts and, and, and focus on what we needed to do. Um, and it really allowed us that that period in the middle where we were we were incredibly successful here locally in our, yeah. in our virus control compared to Denver. Yeah, fast forward and the numbers in El Paso County had been relatively stable. But a few weeks ago, that started to change. How would you characterize the shift? Yeah, it was really that Memorial Day weekend where we saw a fairly dramatic um change in our, our trajectory. We had a good month and a half where we were opening things up um, and and kind of re-energizing and getting out there both civic and, and economic life, and we're being very, very successful. But 
as humans are, um, if, if we're not being reminded constantly of, of what we need to do, um, either internally or externally, we can get uh, lazy and distracted. And, um, and the number of times I think all of us have heard, I'm just so over this whole virus thing, this whole pandemic thing. Um, and that's great. Uh, I'm glad you feel that way, I suppose. But it doesn't really matter because the virus is still out there. And so while we were certainly on to other topics, um, we needed to stay diligent and, and even more diligent, really, because as you open things up, it's easy to do the right thing when you're stuck at home going nowhere. Hmm. It's harder when you're out in the world. And that's really what happened around that Memorial Day. People got out. Yeah, but we didn't do some of those little things. Yeah, some of those little things. Let's talk about specifically what in a reopening in people feeling just a little less on guard, what specifically changed in El Paso County in terms of people's behaviors that you think led to the increase? Yeah, one of the one of the big things we've we've struggled with is we all kind of want to look for one thing to say, oh well, it's grocery stores or it's churches or it's it's backyard barbecues, and if we just fix that one thing, that'll change it and we'll we'll take care of business here. But uh, every day we're reminded that across the board, it's it's everything, it's all the little things. It's not one area that we can focus on. It's just individual little decisions. Some of them are people who don't feel good and they they go out and they know they shouldn't. Some of them don't feel good, but they have jobs that they have to be at. They have to pay bills. And so they, they push it more than they should. Mm. Um, other, a lot of it's younger folks who are in those sort of frontward facing service industries. And one of them gets it and they do a good job when they're, when they're facing customers, but it's, it's in between breaks when they're hanging out with their coworkers where they take the masks off and they, they kind of go back to the normal lives. And suddenly you've got three or four coworkers with it. It's those kinds of situations. Once it gets into one person, household contacts are difficult. Um, and so that's a lot of what we see. It's coworkers and households, the two places where we kind of let down our guard, uh, let down our guard the most. Interesting. Uh, Governor Jared Polis mandated masks statewide last week. And when you addressed county commissioners at that recent meeting we heard in the introduction, you were confident that masks would reduce caseloads. What gives you that confidence? Help people understand the research and the guidance you look to. Yeah, so we, we started out this thing with a novel virus, right? Novel means new. It means we've never seen it before. And so every day we're learning about this particular virus and how it works. And so that's that's science, right? We, we, we don't know something. We figure it out along the way. And then we say, all right, we have enough information to, to, to give this recommendation or, or move in that direction. And that can be frustrating for people, but that's the way it's worked for thousands of years. And this is no different. And so in the beginning, the recommendations of what we, what we knew are very, very, very different than what we know now four months into this thing. Yeah, I think what you're you're reflecting on there is that originally we were told that masks wouldn't make much of a difference, but uh, the knowledge evolved. You don't see that change as somehow undermining the current recommendation. No, absolutely not. Before we knew how how gravity worked, uh, <laughs> it was still there. It was still the truth, but it takes, it takes a little while to figure it out. You know, we didn't know how germs work, but now we do. That doesn't mean you don't now wash your hands because... You know, 200 years ago, you didn't tell me about germs. Um, we learn and we do better and, and we give guidance based on that. And now we know with mass after four months of dealing with this, that both from, you know, experimental in a laboratory, whether it's hamsters or, or machines that, that, that pump out particles, we know that mass can reduce um, the amount of material that gets past it. We know from population studies uh, that populations that have mass or higher mask use do better, have lower rates of transmission. 
We know from outbreak scenarios, both in a positive direction where where it did prevent um, outbreaks and in areas where it didn't, where it could have. And so when you really stack all the evidence up, what we've learned over the last four or five months, um, it's, it's, it's not a question. It's, it's an issue we need to move on from. Uh, masks work. There's no doubt about it. It's just a matter of how do we deploy that tool in the most appropriate manner. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the El Paso County Coroner and Deputy Director of Health there, Dr. Leon Kelly. Dr. Kelly, we get a fair number of emails into the newsroom from people who are circumspect in general about masks and more broadly, I would say, about just how serious the pandemic is. And one thing I read pretty consistently in these emails is a suspicion that the COVID death numbers are inflated. Oh, they are conflating uh, COVID deaths with other sorts of deaths, people who had other conditions. Can you speak to folks who do not trust the death numbers? Speak to folks who, who see that and think this isn't as serious as medical professionals are saying. Yeah, and there's there's two pieces to that. One is one is this is scary. This, this is one of the scariest things we've dealt with as a country, as a world, in in, in a very very long time. And and our natural inclination is is when we hear something awful, um, is some of us have trouble grasping that denial is a very powerful thing. And whether that's about your own health or the health of your your world, um, it, it's always easier to doubt uh, than it is to accept and then have to help. So that's just part of how humans are. But when we look on the data side, you know, this is what I do for a living. I'm the I'm a coroner. Or I'm a medical examiner. My job is essentially counting the people who die and what they die from. Um, and it's not being done any differently than it has for every other disease or every other injury um, throughout the history of coroners. And that's that you, you have someone and they die. You figure out what problems are going on in them. Um, some cases, that's an infectious disease. And that's what we're dealing with COVID. If you are someone in young health and you die from infectious disease, influenza, say, that's why you're dead. If you're an older person, you have a lot of comorbidities. We know those people tend to do worse with infections. We would call it the same thing. We call it influenza plus all of these other diseases that help contribute. That's that's the standard practice in, in determining death. Ultimately, a cause of death is a medical opinion. It's a doctor um, or a coroner saying, what's the most likely reason this, this person is dead? Um, and they offer that medical opinion. And in this case, you know, what, what I do is at being working both as the coroner and at public health. Yeah. I work with those folks. I work with, we work at the hospitals. We have conversations with family. There are literally dozens of people who touch uh, these death investigations um, to come to that conclusion that, that COVID played a significant role in that in that death. The numbers that we report out here at El Paso County and undoubtedly my colleagues across the country are accurate. It's typically not that we're inflating the numbers. It's, it's hard to actually account for all of the impact that COVID is going to have on our society. Dr. Kelly, I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. Dr. Leon Kelly, El Paso County Coroner and Deputy Director of the El Paso County Public Health Department. The title Chief Diversity Officer can be a difficult one to carry. Institutions that say they want to create a better environment for people of color may not move as fast as they could. It's partly why turnover in the field is so high. But Jason Kirksey has led diversity work now for 11 years at an institution the size of a small town, Oklahoma State University, with its 25,000 students. 
That school has been navigating some rough waters with arguably its most visible employee, football coach Mike Gundy. And at this time of reckoning around racial justice, we wanted to hear from OSU's chief diversity officer, who happens to be a Colorado native, a graduate of Manual High School. And Jason Kirksey, welcome and a radio homecoming for you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate being here. I believe in just the last few minutes, the U.S. House held a moment of silence for Congressman John Lewis, who died Friday. He'd been called the conscience of Congress, and he was one of the original freedom writers. I wonder uh, if he's been on your mind in the last few days. Yes, Ryan, he he has. And uh, certainly finding out about the passing of uh, Congressman Lewis, as well as uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian uh, on the same day on Friday. Uh, You know, these are two uh, certainly civil rights uh, icons, doesn't do them justice. You know, the work and the pathways that they helped paved uh, have been phenomenal and and really uh, responsible for a lot of the gains that we've seen uh, over the previous uh, quarter of a century and and longer uh, because of their efforts. So it's uh, certainly something we think about, uh, did voting rights work on the federal court system uh, throughout my career. And uh, so that certainly uh, brings up some of those thoughts and, uh, you know, sad to see it, but appreciate the work that they and many others I'm so glad that you brought up C.T. Vivian, the uh, close friend and confidant of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and remarkable to have lost these two figures on the same day, as you note. So you you played football at Oklahoma State, and at the time, the Cowboys quarterback was Mike Gundy, who's now the coach. And last month, Gundy was photographed wearing a One America News, or OAN, T-shirt, OAN is the far-right television network closely aligned with the president. Almost immediately, a star running back um, went on Twitter and said, I will not stand for this. This is Chuba Hubbard. He says this is completely insensitive to everything going on in society. It's unacceptable. I will not be doing anything with Oklahoma State until things change, Hubbard said. How did you come to understand why that was so painful for Hubbard to see that T-shirt? Well, I think it was it was painful for uh, a lot of individuals, not just Cuba, but I would uh, back up a little bit, Ryan, and just say, you know, I've been here at Oklahoma State for 11 years, yeah. uh, serving under uh, President Burns Hargis, who's been here for 13 years, and the work that uh, has happened at Oklahoma State under President Hargis's leadership has certainly been very special and in many ways spectacular. You know, we work in still one of the, the reddest states in the union in terms of just the, the political uh, voting patterns of the state. We're the eighth of nine states to have uh, an anti-affirmative action provision in our state constitution. And, uh, you know, working within that, that context, OSU has emerged as a national leader and a role model. We've got over 25 nationally prestigious diversity and inclusion awards and recognitions during that time frame, and the awards certainly don't say we're perfect. We've got an awful lot of work to do, uh, but they they tell us something uh, about how we're doing as we receive these nationally prestigious awards. They come from uh, 
organizations that are external and provide an independent assessment of how we're doing. And some of the most prominent organizations in the nation, NADAHI, is the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Ed. Yeah, so you've been recognized, you've been recognized, no doubt. But does that mean that you think there was some goodwill, some uh, strong starting place when this this T-shirt affair occurred? Absolutely. So we we have a great foundation to build on, and uh, instantly uh, the university, and specifically the athletic department, uh, asked me to uh, chair a committee that was already in place. And so we've created an Athletics Diversity and Inclusion Council uh, that I chair that's under the auspices of the Division of Institutional Diversity, so it's an independent um, entity outside of athletics, although that's the purview of our focus. Yeah. It's built on the foundation we have. And what work is there to... Let me just say, by the way, that Mike Gundy apologized, uh, and yes. perhaps more pointedly, two weeks ago, Gundy's contract was reduced by a year, his salary slashed by a million dollars. School leaders said that that was the coach's idea. What work do you see specifically needing to occur in athletics in this regard, do you think? Well, uh, Ryan, I'd say it's you know it's the same work that happens across the institution. So as I said, in, in spite of uh, the recognitions we've received and the good work that we're doing, there's always more work to do, and uh, we're committed to doing that. And you know, across athletics is is very similar. And so ensuring that we're doing everything we can to. Uh, really enrich and fortify our culture of inclusion across Oklahoma State University, which includes intercollegiate athletics. And so there are some opportunities for us to continue to grow and move forward. And uh, Coach Gundy's a part of those and uh, is committed to that work, along with uh, other members of the, the athletic department, including uh, athletic director uh, Mike Holder, who's part of uh, this council. So, Could you give us a specific example of a change you'd like to see in athletics that other universities might as well think about? Well, one of the things that, for example, we've, we've talked about with the council is just uh, ensuring that uh, student-athletes are uh, more fully engaged uh, across the institution, uh, whether it be student organizations or campus programming that's uh, focused on diversity and inclusion and uh, just ensure that uh, we're we're making uh, more aggressive efforts to ensure that we're uh, promoting uh, programs, activities, and events uh, throughout uh, intercollegiate athletics, and again, uh, encouraging uh, our student athletes in particular uh, to become and be a part of it, but also our coaches and administrators. Again, similar to what we've done uh, across uh, the institution as a whole. Yeah, and I guess the the question there is, student athletes are often. Uh, in such high demand and their schedules are already so tight. The question is, how do you make room for them in this discussion? You're saying that's key. You know, it's interesting. Uh, if you're just joining us, by the way, Jason Kirksey's my guest, graduate of Manuel High School in Denver. He's currently vice president and chief diversity officer at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. And um, I'm just fascinated by this, Jason, that uh, there is a story about the rise in demand for diversity officers like yourself. Uh, this piece in the Wall Street Journal called the position one of the hottest jobs in America, and it cited a 2019 study that found 63% of diversity chiefs 
in the S&P 500 had been appointed or promoted to their roles within just the past three years. This same article also pointed out that there's a very high attrition rate, in part because people are excited to come in with, you know, to a company, but within a couple of years, they grow frustrated, partially because employers maybe aren't as committed to change as they indicated. Uh, as we've said, you've been at Oklahoma State now for more than a decade. You were a political science professor, I think, before this. But um, what do you make of the fact that for chief diversity officers, there's so much turnover elsewhere? Well, Ryan, I will say it's a hard job, and it's not just because I do it. It's, it's you know, as we talk to colleagues around the country, and we had a, a Natahi uh, meeting last week, and, and we talk about it. Uh, it. It's a hard job. And, you know, when I go and talk to companies or higher ed institutions, the first thing that I tell them is having a commitment to creating a culture of inclusion is not for the faint of heart. Uh, it's a long-term commitment uh, that requires uh, top-down leadership, uh, and absent that, it becomes immensely challenging uh, to have success. And again, we've been very fortunate here at Oklahoma State, and so my tenure exceeds uh, the average uh, by quite a bit, uh, in part because we've got tremendous leadership who not just gets it, but are engaged in it. And so for companies just starting or organizations just starting, uh, I would say it's important to, to do the research around what it means to have a chief diversity officer position uh, and what your, your goals, your realistic goals are, because some of the attrition is we have unrealistic goals. Mm. You know, we're going to eliminate uh, racism and sexism and homophobia and, uh, and, and other uh, efforts of intolerance and hatred and bigotry. And, you know, that's, it's important to have those goals to try and achieve everything that you can, but those are goals that really are impossible. I've got to have access to everyone's uh, devices and keep people from hitting send hmm. uh, and saying things. And so, you know, my job as chief diversity officer at Oklahoma State is to to work uh, with the president, our administration, our students, faculty, and staff to uh, cultivate and sustain and strengthen environments that are open, that are welcoming, that respect, value, and accommodate uh, every member of the Oklahoma State University family as well as guests who come on to uh, our institutional campuses across the state. And it, it just takes a lot of, lot of work, a lot of effort. It's really about we and not me. Uh, it's not just the chief diversity officer. It's we as, as Oklahoma State University in this case, or uh, we as the corporation, as the case may be. I mean, I think what I hear you saying, first of all, you've mentioned Natahi a few times. That's the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education. But I, I think what I hear, Jason, just as we wrap up in your remarks there is that if a company, if an entity, an institution is embarking on having a diversity officer, uh, they really ought to give some forethought to what that role will be, how integrated in the rest of the institution that person is, and what the goals are. Thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate your time. You're welcome, Ryan. Have a great day. Jason Kirksey, graduate of Manuel High School in Denver and now Chief Diversity Officer at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with haunting symbols of slavery and racism recast by a Denver artist. This is CPR News. 
News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Artist Jasmine Abena Colgan had to answer some provocative questions for her latest show, like what was the price of an African slave? And how do you tie a noose used for lynching? Colgan has traveled several times now to Ghana, where her mother is from, and of course where millions of African slaves were forced onto ships, mostly bound for the Americas. Colgan's new show is called Human Currency. It's at Leon Gallery in Denver, which just reopened for the first time since the pandemic. And Jasmine, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. This show is filled with gut-wrenching symbolism. For example, shells spilling out of a burlap bag on the gallery floor. Tell us about these shells. What are they? The carry shell represents so much. It's a symbol of life. It's a symbol of diaspora. It's a symbol of currency. And um, it was one of the first currencies that were used uh, in China uh, first, and then it was also introduced into the Islamic trade. And from Northern Africa, that's kind of where it was introduced um, in the 8th century, the carry shell was. And so the representation and the value was introduced um, pre-colonization. And so... These essentially were bits of currency used to purchase people. Correct. So 6,370 shells were equivalent to one person, but that's the average weight for somebody. So if somebody was more strong or muscular, they would be a better field worker Mm. um, than the oppressor or the, the colonizer would charge essentially more shells for that person. You counted out 6,370 cowrie shells spilling out of this bag. Yeah. Yeah. What is it like to contemplate that market, that, that number? It was, you know, I found out when I was 13 about the currency. I didn't, I never knew exactly how many shells were the same as one person's value, Mm -hmm. if you will. So that... And this piece, by the way, is called One Human's Worth. Correct. And it's it was really um, gut-wrenching in a sense. Like these, like all of these lives, 6,000 lives, 370 lives had to be killed or sacrificed in order to also sacrifice one human body. And you're, you're referring to the creature that would have lived in the shell. Correct. It was and a the snail. life that that represents, a snail. Okay. Yeah, a small little sea snail. And they're, like the, the shell in particular is actually associated with African-American culture, but um, it was brushed upon in the uh, academic literature and in the education system because of the fact that I feel like it's because of the materiality and the fact that nobody wants to admit that people were traded for materials. 
And you're saying that in many ways, what we've learned about slavery remains abstract because yeah. the moment you get specific about it, you really have a reckoning to do. Yeah. And it's I mean, it was a rude awakening at 13 years old to go to Elmina Slave Castle, which was one of the main ports in West Africa, and to hear the tour guide show these small porcelain like shells that were used um, in a bulk worth to purchase or trade for one person. Um, and I asked the man in Elmina, sorry, I asked the man in Elmina, like, what, what is it like to know all of this information? And he said, it's a blessing and it's a curse because, you know, you're able to share this knowledge and this wisdom with people, but you also have to be a vessel to hold that kind of information. I also just want to say that this one piece, uh, Jasmine Colgan, is such a, a a good demonstration of your layers of thinking when you see your works of art. Everything is a symbol. So the, the shells were currency. What used to live in the shells? The number of shells. I think you even see symbolism in the burlap bag from which mm-hmm. they're spilling. This is how your mind works. Yeah. <laughs> what does the burlap bag represent? Oh, my God. Uh, well, it's it's also tied to another piece, literally. Um, it, it's in reference to the noose. That is one of the first pieces that you see when you walk into the gallery. And that's essentially, normally, oftentimes, people would cover the person's head when they were um, about to lynch them. Or it, it, everyone's different, if that makes sense. Like, there's different forms of lynching. Now the contemporary form is a gun or even, like, a knee to the neck. And, yeah. So, so. this is a piece. I'm just going to say that when you walk by this gallery in Denver, mm-hmm. prominently displayed in the window is a noose mm-hmm. that you tied. And to you, this symbolizes lynchings of yesteryear and modern lynchings. Yeah. This is um, a tough thing to walk by right now. Yeah, it is. I've gotten a lot of backlash, but it's worth it because, you know, like the verbal backlash, I think. What does the backlash sound like? Just briefly. What do people say about seeing a noose at this moment in the window of a gallery? Well, someone who was... um, I think they they were of color and down in Denver, um, she's struggling right now on the streets. And it was something that she was referencing that most of the people who are living on the streets are in that mindset. So that was something I wasn't intending on um, triggering for some people. Um, I are was, you saying that she was living in homelessness? Yeah, uh-huh. that's that's one of my things I want to work on as well. Um, it's just so sad to see everybody down in Denver intense, but... Um, back to race politics, I guess. Um, These are also intertwined as well. Of course. They are. And so this was triggering for her to see this yeah. in the window. That gave you some pause, I guess. Yeah. And I was really glad that she said something because um, she was not aware that there were four people who were lynched this year with an actual rope. Twelve bucks is what that rope costs. And like I didn't feel I talked to the gallery directors, Eric, Eric squared is what I call them because they're both Eric. <laughs> Those um, who run Leon. Gallery. Yeah, uh-huh. they're pretty great. Um, they um, we had a discussion and I was just not comfortable with selling that piece because it's a weapon. It's like if someone were to display a gun or some bullets, like 
and put that up for sale, that's the same kind of representation of oh, like the use, like you, this is allowing the use of a weapon in a sense. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and Colorado artist Jasmine Abena Colgan joins us. Her show has just opened in Denver at Leon Gallery, this nonprofit gallery in the heart of the city. And the show is called Human Currency. And uh, I think we're, we're hearing your bracelets, if people can hear. My bad. They're from Ghana. <laughs> They're um, from Ghana. They are. <laughs> uh, as is uh, some of your family. Yeah. And traveling to Ghana uh, affords you the opportunity to come very close to the gateway to American slavery. How much is that in the consciousness of modern day Ghanaians? How present is that in their daily lives? Your mother is Ghanaian and you've been mm-hmm. several times. Yeah, I'm. my dad worked really hard for my brothers and I to go back and forth um, like so that we're able to understand our culture in Ghana. And I'll just say your parents met when your father was in the Peace Corps, I think in Ghana. Mm-hmm. And yeah. your father's American with Irish roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people... So... As I'm going back now and I'm learning about a lot of this information, you know, I did about 12 weeks of research in the last two years in Ghana, just trying to understand, like Sankofa is a symbol and Sankofa means to go back and understand and to get it, to understand your roots and your, your culture and to, um, yeah. Say that word again. Sankofa. Spell it for me. S-A-N-K-O-F-A. I actually have like a tattoo of it on my arm but it's a bird essentially going back into the egg um so it's like going back in getting time. to know its roots yeah yeah um and that's a tribal symbol from the adinkra um yeah the adinkra symbols that are like moral beliefs and so when you go to ghana mm-hmm. And you are not at the slave castles, mm-hmm. but you are in everyday society. Do you think that there's, is there an awareness of that history? Do they, is that something that Ghanaians carry with them? Yes. And no, at the same time, I think I can't speak for every Ghanaian because I think everyone <laughs> is so different. You I know? wouldn't ask you to. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think that um, when you go there, you're able to feel the history the roots are so like the ground is so sacred and it's so ancient. There are so many different spirits it feels and souls that have like lingered in within like the land. Um, but it's it's something where there's a lot of un unrested um, hearts, if you will. Like a lot of people, like a lot of the the history in Ghana is is oral history. Um, they're starting to do like this translation. My grandfather, my, I found out it wasn't my great, great grandfather. It's my great grandfather. My great grandfather founded Winneba, which is that town of a small village outside of Elmina. Um, but a lot of people, it's taboo to talk about the slavery. So a lot of people don't talk about, um, what had happened unless if you're going to educate yourself about like the historical upbringing. My mom wasn't aware a lot about a lot of the things until I started doing my own personal research for uh, my thesis. Um, so you, in a way, taught her as well. Yeah. There are other fraught symbols in this show. Cotton, for mm-hmm. instance. There's a second noose that's covered in those cowrie shells, as we mentioned. 
hanging on the wall is a racial slur that I understand has been used against you as a person of color. Just briefly, uh, we have about a minute. How much of this show is about reclaiming symbols that have been used against people of color? All of it. All of it. (laughs) Yeah. I think especially with like the going to the gold mine and getting the like the gold that comes from um, like the mine that initiated the Atlantic slave trade. This is a mine in Ghana. Yeah. And the cotton, you know, to to handpick it from Walmart where there's like a lot of labor and such uh, like issues with labor. But all of it is to reclaim and to I, I just hope that with making the noose that there won't be another lynching. I want to thank you for your time, Jasmine. Thank you. Artist Jasmine Abena Colgan, her new show at the reopened Leon Gallery in Denver is called Human Currency. And by the way, my colleague Donna Bryson wrote an article about this show with photographs at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs> Sports returned this summer against the backdrop of two historic events, the coronavirus pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot has happened since former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick began protests on the sideline of racial inequality and police brutality four years ago. Will this year's movement finally yield results in sports and the world at large? CPR's Vic Vela reports. Bounces to Kamara with the bicycle finish. What a goal from Kai Kamara. When Colorado Rapids veteran forward Kai Kamara isn't scoring goals or working on his game, he stays busy trying to keep up with his two young children. And one of them especially has a lot of questions about what's going on in the world right now. Because they keep asking about it, you know, over and over. Like my son mentioned it a few times and he's even walked around the house and echoed, Black Lives Matter. And I was like, you're only three years old. How do you even remember those things? Kamara and his wife took their kids to some of the protests in Denver following the death of George Floyd because they wanted to educate their kids about what the movement means. Then recently, as Major League Soccer resumed play, players held a silent on-field demonstration for eight minutes and 46 seconds the amount of time a white police officer placed his knee on Floyd's neck. The message that Black Lives Matter has resonated around the world these past few weeks. If the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis was the initial spur, the subsequent response has been both reassuring and, frankly, extraordinary. MLS players have created a group called Black Players for Change, which aims to put issues of racial inequality front and center. Kamara is one of more than 70 players who launched the group. I mean, how many black coaches do we have? How many black GMs do we have? I mean, so it's not about players giving their their lives and sacrifice and families and, and you know, uh, blood and all that for clubs for so many years. And then after are not really being considered for a position, even when they do have the qualifications for it. Meanwhile, after the NBA suspended play in March due to the pandemic, 22 teams are soon set to resume play in Orlando. Coaches have launched their own group aimed at tackling racial inequities called the NBA Coaches for Racial Justice. Denver Nuggets head coach Michael Malone. We're trying to fight for lasting and sustainable change. And we can't allow the games beginning back again to take the light off the message and what's going on. 
uh, because this is the moment. This is unlike all the other years. We have to carry this through. That's the hope, that this time is going to be different when it comes to creating systemic racial change in sports. But we've seen demonstrations before, like Colin Kaepernick's kneeling during the national anthem. So how will the new Black Lives Matter movement result in real, meaningful change in the sports world? Amira Rose Davis is an African-American professor at Penn State University, where she teaches topics like African-American history and sports history. On one hand, she's somewhat optimistic about this year's movement. On the other, Davis worries that the message becomes too commercialized and distracts from what the movement is all about in the first place. Picture football coming back and Monday night football and, you know, halftime displays in a, a nicely shot produced video and we're all in this together and here's a monetary commitment that seems like a really large number but is 2% of our operating budget. And you're happy because all of a sudden there's been like a new black coach in the league and they started a new scholarship named after Colin Kaepernick, but they can't even say his name in a video. One glaring problem across all sports is the lack of minority head coaches. Tremaine Jackson is a first year head football coach at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. He's one of only a handful of African-American head coaches in a sport where the majority of players are black. You need black coaches, minority coaches, in order to relate, sitting living rooms. Somebody's got to go recruit the kid in Compton, California. Somebody's got to go recruit the kid in North Houston. But when it comes down to being in charge, not very many of us are in charge. And it's a systemic racism issue, in my opinion. And it's not just the fact that there's not a whole lot of minority coaches or general managers. The roots of racial inequality in sports dig a lot deeper than that. Let's look at baseball. According to Forbes, in 1981, 18.7% of Major League Baseball players were African American. On opening day in 2018, that number was just 8.4%. Thomas Harding is a black Major League Baseball reporter who covers the Rockies. First of all, there are so few on the field because there are so few participating at the youth and high school levels, and that has become a finance thing. I mean, the, the sport has almost become country club. You have to pay a lot of fees that you didn't have to pay in the past, and I'm not sure they produce better ballplayers. So the division between the haves and the have-nots starts at the earliest levels of baseball, and Harding says that can have a lasting impact on the future of the game itself. You look in the stands and there certainly aren't a lot of African-American or even or even Latino fans, even though they love the sport. But the biggest determiner to being a fan, especially in the United States, is having played at some level. And once again, if you can't actually get on the field and play, you're not going to be a baseball fan. It's, or, or I should say it's very hard to do. There's been some victories during this summer of racial justice reckoning. NASCAR has banned the Confederate flag at their events. Washington's football team is doing away with their racist nickname and logo. And schools across the country, including right here in Colorado, are taking hard looks at getting rid of their disparaging mascots as well. And these are things many people thought would never happen. So, four years after Colin Kaepernick protested police brutality and inequality, there's some cautious optimism that the problems he shined a light on are finally getting the attention they deserve. Here is Colorado Mesa coach Tremaine Jackson again. Right now, Colin Kaepernick can come out and say, I told you so, but he hasn't. You know, my grandma used to use the term, eat a little crow. Everybody's (laughs) having to 
to eat some crow. And so I remember four years ago, nobody wanted him around. And so I think now things like that throughout college football, especially coming out of a pandemic, uh, and then everybody being at home to see what happened with George Floyd, there will be more demonstrations, in my opinion. Jackson is hopeful that demonstrations and calls for change, especially from young people, will help keep the movement going. And Rapids player Kai Kamara hopes the Black Lives Matter movement will grow stronger. Rest in peace and condolence to the George Floyd family. But for somebody like that, his life to be that sacrifice to wake up the whole world and said, you know what, enough is enough. But will it be enough for change to actually happen? I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. And still to come, how pandemic life affects people with disabilities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it? It keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and this is Willie Nelson. We need to end the federal ban on cannabis. On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now that Coloradans are required to wear masks, we wondered how people with disabilities are navigating the pandemic. For instance, those who are deaf and rely on lip reading to communicate, or those who are blind and use touch to navigate their daily lives. From Colorado Springs, KRCC's Abigail Beckman spoke with Emily Schumann of the Rocky Mountain ADA Center. So what have you seen as the biggest impacts to the deaf and blind community in the Pikes Peak region as this pandemic continues? Maybe issues of going to Zoom and video calls or even communication barriers? Sure. I think one of the biggest questions that we get asked is about the use of face masks. For people who are deaf or hard of hearing, being able to see a person's face is really vital to communication Whether they lip read or not, a lot of communication that a person who's deaf gets while they're using sign language comes from facial expression. So a lot of what we've seen there is wondering if there's an alternate sort of mask that can be used um, that's got a clear panel or that allows the person to keep their face safely covered but still visible. I would say for people who are blind, early on in the pandemic, we did have somebody who reported that they went to a grocery store with their service animal and were basically told to go away because the the grocery store couldn't find the time to provide a dedicated staff member to help them go through the store and find items that they needed. So they were just basically denied service. And on a wider scale in terms of access, what has the pandemic brought to light as far as disparities for people with disabilities that maybe wasn't as widely recognized as before. Like something that stands out to me is transportation. So we saw a decrease in bus routes. You know, people were encouraged to not use ride sharing as often. Um, Does that fall into that category? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what stands out to me is that now that everybody's sort of honed in on the pandemic, you know, you're, you're seeing some of those barriers present themselves in different ways. There are always issues for people with disabilities when it comes to transportation. So, for example, you know, before the pandemic, someone with a service animal, a lot of times your Uber or Lyft driver is going to turn you away because they don't understand that it's your right to have the service animal in the car with you. So, you know, that was a barrier in the past and still would be a barrier, but now we've added another barrier of, 
like you said, discouraging the use of ride shares altogether, but then also maybe if Uber and Lyft are going to require the use of masks and you're someone who can't wear a mask because of a disability, that's just presented another barrier. So one of the things that we're seeing um, coming up right now is that with, you know, the social distancing measures, you know, restaurant owners are doing open air seating in their parking lots. A lot of times what's happening is they're setting those open air tables up on top of their accessible parking spaces. So now you've prevented a person with a disability who uses accessible parking, maybe a wheelchair user, from being able to come to your establishment. Do you think there's more attention being given to accommodating these issues or less? Or, I mean, was is there ever enough? Um, I, I definitely think there's more attention being given because everybody's having to be accommodated right now, you know, especially at the beginning of everybody being shut down. A lot of people transition to working remotely or sort of reconfiguring their business to operate in a different way. And I think that brings attention to the fact that people with disabilities are often asking for accommodations like working from home or modifying their workspace, things like that. So the pandemic is really bringing light to the fact that, you know, people with disabilities live their lives having to be creative um, and find alternate ways of doing things that are maybe different from uh, the way things are normally done. And the Americans with Disabilities Act will celebrate its 30th anniversary at the end of the month. Um, can you just talk about some major changes since the initiation of the ADA and what more you're hoping to see specifically here in the in the Pikes Peak region? Sure. Um, I think the biggest difference is the internet. The internet did not exist back in 1990, at least not in the way it does now. Specifically, social media, which is such a huge part of the way that we live our lives and connect with each other, get information, share information. All of those things were developed kind of without the interest of people with disabilities in mind. So now what you're seeing is people having to go back and try to make it accessible on the back end. Um, what I'm hoping to see in the future is to really have a lot more focus on accessible websites, accessible social media, because it seems like um, people with disabilities are really getting left behind with inaccessible digital communications. That is Emily Schumann of the Rocky Mountain ADA Center speaking with Abigail Beckman of KRCC in Colorado Springs. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Natasha Watts. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.